Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, please open yours to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and I shall begin by linking two verses together. The very first verse in Matthew 1 is the very first verse. Uh, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The second verse is verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. I thought we might kick off our Christmas series by looking at someone rarely looked at. His name is Joseph. He is the adoptive father of Jesus, and I think we all know he is about as close to the Christmas story as it gets. Verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. A Christmas is all about the birth of Messiah, and the two people closest to that birth are Mary and Joseph. If we were to look at Christmas songs with the name Joseph in it, we will be looking for a very long time. It is true, Michael Card wrote a song, Joseph's Story, uh, but in early December 2014, Crack Music found some interesting statistics for us. 914,047 Christmas tracks. That's just under a million Christmas tracks. Joseph's name is never mentioned one time. Mary's name appears in approximately 27% of all Christmas songs. Jesus well, as you might imagine, and rightfully so, his name is mentioned the most. <clears throat> I am sure all of us who have been around Christmas sermons have heard plenty about Jesus and Mary. But how many sermons are preached about Joseph during the Christmas season? Uh, if the answer is seldom, few, rarely, that means one other thing. None are probably preached about him during any other season. I think I know at least one reason why Joseph is rarely talked about. All indications suggest Joseph died uh, before Jesus's earthly ministry began. <laughs> when Jesus was dying on the cross, you may recall, he entrusted his mother's care to John, the apostle to whom he loved. And of course, the question is, why would he do that? if Joseph was still alive. Matthew 13 and 55, they asked, is not this the carpenter's son? Why not ask, is not this Joseph's son? I asked that question because in that same verse, they asked, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? But clearly they, they knew the names of his family but not his adoptive father. Very little is written about Joseph. Only two chapters, as best as I can tell, in the entire Bible mention him by name. Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. I understand why most Christmas sermons are about Mary and Jesus, and rightfully so. But I hope this morning to show and demonstrate why Joseph deserves a sermon or two. I want to take the meaning of his name and give it meaning for us. Incidentally, the name Joseph means 
may God add. God added Joseph's name, verse 1, in, in the genealogy of the royal line of David. Remember, the angel Gabriel had promised Mary, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, Luke 1 and 32, and Joseph is in that family tree. Jesus, in verse 1, is said to be the son of David. For most readers of the Bible, reading a genealogy is about as exciting as reading a telephone book. Most Christians, and look, I'm, I'm just as guilty, take one glance at chapter 1 and skip right on to chapter 2, thinking, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal, when we pause to consider the billions of people and all their individual names that have lived over the last 2,000 years, the big deal is Joseph's name is added to a chapter with approximately 58 names, give or take. God added the name Joseph. That means God adds to a very exclusive group of names. Matthew begins Joseph's story in verse 18. Notice Matthew 1 and verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Well, let's talk about that. The pledge to be married refers to an ancient Jewish marriage custom. In those days, most marriages were arranged by the parents with or without the children's approval. And when the contract was signed, the man and woman were legally pledged to each other. Now, I know on the surface that sounds a lot like our practice of engagement. But I think I can demonstrate why our practice of engagement and the idea of being pledged to each other are not even on the same planet. In the first place, the pledge was considered as sacred as marriage itself. If two people in our culture get engaged <clears throat> and decide not to follow through, follow through with the marriage, our laws, our culture, our religious practices would say, no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul legally, morally, or religiously. Not the case in the first century. The pledge, now get this, was as binding as marriage is itself. Look at verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. When Matthew retells the events of this story, Joseph takes Mary as his wife in verse 24. Now pay careful attention to how Joseph was described before verse 24. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or pledged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now watch the beginning of verse 19. And Joseph, her husband. Let's stop there. Before he took her as his wife in verse 24, before they came together, sexually speaking, verse 18, Joseph was called what, verse 19? Her husband. We don't call the man who is engaged to a woman her husband until verse 24. We don't call a man engaged to a woman her husband until they legally 
consummate the marriage with some official wedding day. Not the case in the Jewish faith. Now, why did I take the time to point that out? Why this man deserves a sermon or two? Look at verse 19 and find those words, planned to send her away. Why did he plan to send her away? Well, verse 18, they had not yet come together sexually speaking, and she, according to verse 18, is found to be with child. Do you think most fiancés who have never had sexual relations with their soon-to-be-married partner who shows up pregnant, what do you think most would think and do? What did Joseph want to do? Send her away, or to put it another way, divorce her. Remember, the pledge period is not like our engagement period. There's no need to get divorced during our engagement practices in our culture. If you call off an engagement, there's no need for divorce, but not the case in this culture or in this religious system, and here is why. Deuteronomy 22, 20, and 21, but if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. If a virgin was found to be pregnant during the pledge period, that can only mean one thing. She had been unfaithful to her fiancé. No, she had been unfaithful to her husband. In which case, the law commanded that she be stoned to death. Mary turns up pregnant. Joseph only knows one thing for sure. He's not the father. Men, I'd like you to put yourselves in Joseph's shoes. Would you be angry? Would you be embarrassed? Would you be hurt? Perhaps Joseph even cried. Mary's pregnancy would not be treated like it would be in our culture. She could be stoned. She could be shunned. She could be single for the rest of her life. I say single for the rest of her life because no law-abiding Jewish father would ever pledge their son to marry Mary, a girl found pregnant before her wedding day. I learned something about my grandmother that I did not know until my dad was dying. I learned that in the early 1930s, she was married before, and I learned that the man she was married to beat her badly. And my grandfather, my great-grandfather, I should say, her father, took her home, and she divorced that man. I want you to think about something. I did not find out any of that story until 2018. My grandfather, who was her second husband and loved her dearly, never wanted that subject discussed. But that was the 1930s. What about first century Jerusalem under the law? Do, do you know what kind of man is needed in situations like this? The kind of man that needs a sermon or two. But look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace he had in mind 
to divorce her quietly. Many of today's men would be so embarrassed, so hurt, so angry, they probably would put the story on Facebook and tell all their buddies what a cheat she is. Not Joseph. Matthew says he was a righteous man. Notice, however, his righteousness is not spoken in the context that we might assume it would be. It's not spoken in strict adherence to the law of God, although, let's be clear, that's righteousness. Rather, it is spoken in the context of not wanting to expose her. Now remember, he does not know yet. Know what? Well, the very end of verse 20. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know that yet. When he decides in verse 19 that he does not want to expose her publicly, but will divorce her privately, he does not know who the father is. He thinks she cheated on him. Righteous means a lot of things. It can mean high standards, upright, just, fair, following the law of God. But I want to add a couple of other words. Righteous can mean merciful. And if we really want to get right down to it, righteousness is anything God would do. Because anything God would do is right. Joseph wanted to do the right thing. Did you know there is a right thing? And then there is the right thing when it comes to the law. Allow me to explain. Luke 6, 1 through 5, now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Listen carefully to our Lord's response. Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat, except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's the point? Well, in the interest of survival, David, the king, and his companions were allowed to be above the law with the priest's blessing in that they were able to eat the bread that only the priests could eat. Christ and his companions were also above the law, especially the one the Pharisees were proclaiming. And how is the right thing described? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the wrong thing to Joseph was prosecuting her publicly for adultery. Joseph decided to secretly divorce Mary in such a way as to protect her as much as he could. Do you know what I see in Joseph? I see Jesus. What we see in Joseph, mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, right? So when we extend mercy to someone, we are not violating the law. We are simply righteous and being like God because God is merciful. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think of the woman caught in adultery. She was caught. She was guilty. 
that the men were attempting to stone her. Jesus said, I do not judge you. Go and sin no more. I would argue that's mercy and grace. But that's also a call to repentance. Go and sin no more. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're a teenager in love and suddenly, suddenly your girlfriend turns up pregnant. You aren't the father, but you don't know who is. What do you do? If you're a typical American teenager, you give the girl the necessary money to go get an abortion. Millions of teenage girls take that option every year. But Joseph's dilemma was of a great different variety. He was an observant Jew and under the law. Here before us is the greatness of Joseph. He struggled, now get this, between legal conscience and love. Legal conscience says, Mary, you're guilty. You did it. You must pay. Love? Well, love says, 1 Peter 4 and 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, look, we all know that Mary did not sin, right? We know that. But at this very moment in time in the story, Joseph does not know that yet. Did God violate the law when he killed his son for our sins? No. That was the most merciful, loving act of righteousness the world has ever seen and ever will. But look at verse 20. But when he had considered this. Can we stop there? May I make a practical observation? When we are struggling between legal conscience and love, before you do one single thing, stop to consider. That word for considered is the word enthumeomai. It means to think deeply and think wholeheartedly. Open up your heart wide and begin to ponder. Give God time to work on your mind and on your heart, and here is why. People, folks, people are involved. For Joseph, Mary's involved. Stop to consider the law of the Sabbath. Stop to consider the woman caught in adultery. She's guilty, no doubt about it. But also stop to consider the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath, who said, I do not judge you, go and sin no more. He could have judged her, but the law permitted it. Perhaps we can make the argument demanded it. But the law also equally demands mercy. Give God time to work on your mind the next time and on your heart, and here is why. Verse 20, after considering, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Imagine if Joseph had not considered. Imagine if his emotions had gotten the best of him. And he raced out and began telling people, do you know what she did to me? She cheated on me. She committed adultery. Look, I'm not suggesting an angel is going to appear to us in a dream, but perhaps a brother or sister might have a word from the word of God. Maybe the Holy Spirit, John 14 and 26, might bring to our remembrance a word from God's word. Give God time by considering. In this case, Joseph learned Mary was not unfaithful. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Not a man, Joseph, but the third member in the Godhead, 
Verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know, the gospel hinges on many truths, and two of them are right before us. Joseph, this child's father, is no human father. God, the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans teaches us our, our sin nature is traced back to the Holy Spirit. Of course not, but to Adam. Jesus traces his birth to God. Jesus is begotten by the Holy Spirit and is therefore the Son of God, Luke 1 and 32. But legally, he is the adoptive son of Joseph and therefore an heir to the promises of David, Joseph's, Joseph's ancestor. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. His mission is to save his people from their sins. But look, if he was the child of any human man, he could not save us. Sinners cannot save sinners. We need the just for the unjust. We need a lamb spotless without defect, perfect. We need the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when Joseph woke up, notice verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. You know what I call that? A righteous man. But I want us to notice something of greatness. Verse 25 says he kept her a virgin. Why? Why Joseph deserves a sermon or two. And we could say by marrying her quickly, he protected Mary's reputation. That's worthy of a sermon. How about this? By keeping her a virgin until Jesus was born, he protected the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit against slander by unbelievers. That deserves a sermon. By naming the baby, he took him into his family as his own legal adoptive son. That deserves a sermon. By becoming his adoptive father, he was entrusted to protect him with his very life. Look, look for, with me at Matthew 2, the second time his name is mentioned, and allow me to read verses 13 through 15. Something all fathers must be reminded of. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord, Matthew 2, verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Joseph protected his adoptive son. That deserves a sermon. Can you imagine batting a thousand, two for two? The only two times your name is ever mentioned, there is only righteousness associated with your name. Joseph obeyed immediately and left in the middle of the night for Egypt. As I began to ponder his personality, his characteristics, his righteousness, he was tough when he could have been weak. He was tender when he could have been tough. He was thoughtful when he could have been hasty. He was trusting when he could have doubted. Do you know what I think? I think Joseph deserves a Christmas sermon, but I also think that I also think he's worthy of a sermon at any time of the year because he teaches men how to be a righteous man. Well, that's our first lesson during the Christmas season. My friend, I don't know where you are when it comes to the gospel. Christmas is about the gospel. 
Jesus was born in a crib in order to go to a cross. He came to rescue us from our sins. And when Jesus preached, he preached, repent and believe the gospel and follow me. Repent means to change your mind, to change your mind about what you believe and how you behave. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus the fulfillment of Isaiah 7 and 14? A virgin will be with child and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He is the son of God and therefore God. Do you believe this, my friend? He was a sinless man who led a sinless life, died on a cross, rose from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures. He is God. He is man, born of a virgin, died for our sins. He came to bring us mercy and grace for salvation. We can't earn our salvation. James says, if you keep the whole law, 613 laws in the law, if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. This is why Jesus said to a man, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. If you want to get to heaven, you need to be perfect. Right about now, one of you is at least thinking, who could be perfect? Well, the answer is no one and someone. No one is you and me. Someone is Jesus, the just for the unjust. You see, the only sacrifice for your sin that God will expect accept is the sacrifice of his son. He will not accept any of your sacrifices. They're not perfect enough. But you also must repent and change your mind about how you behave. God didn't just save us from sin, the penalty, but also the power. You see, when you're born again of the Spirit, you take on a whole new disposition about righteousness. You want to do what God wants you to do. You want to live the way God wants you to live. You don't argue with his laws and commands. You repent, you change. And this is lifelong. None of us are going to be fully sanctified the day we believe. But for the rest of your Christian life, it's about growing into conformity into the image of his son. Well, I hope and pray that you repent and believe the gospel. Merry Christmas, and may God bless you.